looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion and analysis, plus timely and entertaining sports and pop culture topics. And today, we're going to start with some housekeeping, give some pro football focus ratings from the Week 5 win over the Cowboys, talk some injury updates, George Kittle's shirt, Brock Purdy's MVP odds, Dan Orlovsky comparing Mac Jones to Brock Brock Purdy, which made me think, where does uh, Brock Purdy actually rank in quarterbacks in the league? And then we will break down the 49ers-Browns matchup in the plus section. We're going to discuss a major league playoff format change a lot of people are crying for, Wheel of Time Season 2 finale. Loki season two premiere, and we will conclude with week six NFL picks. But like always, it starts with the Niners, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners. So let's put a bow on last week's thumping of the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday Night Football and discuss some pro football focus ratings, top five highest rated on offense and defense for the Niners. On offense, running back Jordan Mason had a 91 rating on 13 snaps. Brock Purdy, 85.3. Brandon Ayuk, 82.4. George Kittle and his three touchdowns, 79.3. And left tackle Trent Williams, 78.8. On defense, linebacker Oren Burks, 94.6. Nick Bosa, 91.2. Cornerback Diamador Lenore, 84.7. Linebacker Dre Greenlaw, 81.2 and defensive tackle Javon Kinlaw, 79.5. Some snap counts of note of 71 total offensive snaps. Kittle had 56, McCaffrey 52, Jordan Mason 13, Ty Davis-Price had about seven snaps himself, and the tight ends behind Kittle, Charlie Werner with 22, and Ross Dwelly with 15. On defense, I could not find the overall number for whatever reason. But Nick Bosa had 34 snaps, Cleland Farrell 31, and uh, Austin Bryant 20. So those were essentially the top three defensive ends since Drake Jackson went out early with an injury. At D-tackle, Javon Hargrave and Eric Armstead 27 each. Backups to them, Javon Kinlaw and Kevin Givens 22 each. And the corners or at least the number three corner and beyond. Isaiah Oliver at number three with 31 snaps, Ambry Thomas and Kendall Sheffield at 12. So even looking at somebody like Abosa, now now the corners did get more snaps. So Charvarius Ward and Diamondor Lenore were basically in for close to all the to the entire game, but I couldn't find a total snap count, at least on the ready. But when you're talking about some of your bigger players like Abosa, Hargrave, Armstead, Um, Oliver, important as a nickel, playing 30 or fewer snaps the entire game. One, that's great to keep him fresh. Two, you knew it was a blowout. And three, it was fantastic that Shanahan, and in this instance, the defensive staff, took key players out when the game was in hand. I think we saw Bosa and Armstead and Warner basically on the sideline to start the fourth quarter, which is What you need to do. The game was well in hand. It shouldn't be a 32-point lead. It could be a 21-point lead or a 24-point. Something. When you have that kind of a stranglehold on the game that you don't have to expose your players to extra snaps, extra hits, extra possibility of getting injured, even if it's just a tweaked ankle or something minor, not worth it. So I enjoyed seeing the snaps, especially on defense and the rotation that was employed. Now, the Niners did not get out totally unscathed. I mentioned on the Monday podcast that Aaron Banks looked like he had a bicep injury. Thankfully, that was not the case. It is a mild shoulder strain. He is day-to-day, and he was a limited participant in Wednesday's practice. Running back Eli Mitchell 
did not practice on Wednesday, still being bothered by a knee injury that he suffered in practice a couple weeks ago. Mitchell has missed the last two games, which has given Jordan Mason a larger role in at least this past game, Ty Davis-Price, some additional snaps. We will see if Mitchell can get healthy enough to play Sunday at Cleveland. Now, something that drew some attention and some, we'll call it bad feelings from a Cowboys player was the shirt that George Kittle wore under his jersey. After beating the Cowboys, he pulled up his jersey and there was a gray shirt with the blue Cowboys star on it. And above it, it said F Dallas. And this was ultimately, or quite literally, a throwback to, to linebacker Gary Plummer, who did this in the 1994 season after they beat the Cowboys. Whether it was in the regular season in San Francisco, they won the game 21-14, to or if it was the NFC Championship game that they won 38-28. to Because remember, this was... Two prior years, the Niners losing an NFC Championship game. I think one of those years in 92 or 93, I say I think 93, they wound up losing at Dallas in the regular season. So it's three straight losses. The 49ers wound up bringing in Gary Plummer from the Chargers. They brought Ken Norton Jr. over at linebacker from the Cowboys. Deion Sanders signed from the Falcons. Ricky Jackson from the Saints. Richard Dent from the Bears, who got hurt early on in that season. And the draft brought them fullback William Floyd and defense defensive tackle Bryant Young and linebacker Lee Woodall. And that was, I believe, the first year of the salary cap. So the Niners kind of went all in in terms of putting a team on the field that could beat Dallas and going for the Super Bowl. And that shirt was something that, you know, Gary Plummer wore. And George Kittle calling himself a self-named um, internet troll, although this wasn't internet trolling, this was literally trolling on the field, apparently under the terms of the NFL's fine schedule or fining schedule, personal messages carry a fine of nearly $11,000. Now that's pocket change to what Kittle's making on the field and in endorsements, and the NFL is mulling whether or not to fine him. Not sure if it's because... It's an undershirt versus if it was on their cleats or socks or something that was more apparent throughout the game versus something that he did. I think there's really only one picture of it that he did to the fans as he was um, leaving the field. Now, Cowboys linebacker, star linebacker Micah Parsons did not take too kindly to this in his podcast. And listen, I've listened to some of Micah Parsons' podcast. He's a cool dude. He's a good guy. He breaks things down rationally. He's been wondering why, you know, leading up to this game, why Purdy hasn't gotten the respect that he's deserved. He gives other players his due. High energy guy, good character guy. I think he's a good dude. I think his take here is, I don't know if it's ill-informed or just trying to strum something up, but here was the quote after seeing the picture of George Kittle's shirt. Quote, I just feel like he's making it way more personal than it has to be. Kittle's my guy, but I'm going to say this. Laugh now, cry later. We got something for that. Listen, when you got beat, when you get beaten by 32 points and Micah Parsons really, truly feels that the 49ers and Cowboys are on similar levels or the, or the Cowboys aren't too far behind the Niners, from a talent perspective, yeah, I agree. I honestly do agree. They are not separated by that much. But you can have two chefs cooking the same meal or have the same ingredients and cook similar meals, but one tastes a lot better than the other. It's how you mix the ingredients. It's how you employ things on the field, putting players in the right position. What spices are you using? How are you garnishing it? How long are you cooking it for? All that good stuff. I don't think Micah Parsons realizes that this is a historic NFL rivalry. And yes, he's been part of it for the past two seasons and lost in the playoffs to San Francisco the past two seasons. So maybe from the Cowboys' perspective, really, it's not much of a rivalry because it's a rivalry. It's really only a rivalry if each team wins. And I'm not saying that to be facetious. That's kind of a definition of a rivalry. But going back, you know, you're talking about in the 80s, the catch, Dwight Clark, 
against the Cowboys to lead the 49ers to their first Super Bowl. And before that, the Cow- the Niners could not beat the Cowboys in the playoffs. The Cowboys were the reason why the Niners did not get to the Super Bowl before Joe Montana really became the starter. So this is a rivalry that's spanning 40 plus years. These are teams that you don't, you know, you may have friends on another team or you know, teams, players don't hate each other like they maybe did in the 80s or whatever on the field or even off the field, which is a big complaint about NBA players nowadays versus back in the 80s and 90s. But this is a rivalry, Micah. It's okay. He didn't have a shirt that says F Micah Parsons. Like, I don't think any offensive linemen were wearing shirts underneath that said F Micah Parsons because he had a, a non-factor game. No sacks, four total tackles, one solo tackle. It's okay to get up for these big games. Maybe that's a reason why you guys lost by 32. Maybe you should wear some F the Niners shirts or something to get your team riled up. Kittle didn't take it personally. Kittle's a jokester. He was having fun with it. But you can believe that even though I thought the Cowboys would have this game circled on the schedule since the schedule came out and really be pointing at this just like Jerry Jones did as a measuring stick game, the Niners laid it to him, but it's a brand rivalry, San Francisco, Dallas. It's been his big rivalry. Again, it's one of the top three teams I hate and probably the biggest rivalry for me growing up, having to see two of three championship game losses to them before they could finally get over the hump. And Debo heard of this on Kay Adams up and Adams podcast and was asked about it. And his response was, we beat you 42 to 10. I don't think you want to see us again because it could get worse. If the Niners were to beat them by more than 32, I would be shocked. <laughs> I would really be shocked. I can see the defense putting up a similar performance. Maybe the offense doesn't go as nuts. But, you know, Debo even did say, he's like, yeah, it's personal. We're taking it personal. You know, just because San Fran won the last two games against Dallas doesn't mean that this team does not have certain feelings about the Cowboys. Do you think San Francisco feels the same way about the Texans or the Panthers or the Colts or the Saints? You know, like they're just, they're, they're teams, they're NFL caliber teams, obviously, but it's not the same thing, right? It's not the same thing as a division rival. It's not the same thing if the Packers were to come to town. It's not the same thing if the Giants were to come to town. Or even say like the the Patriots when Brady was there. It's just different. It's different. I think Debo acknowledges it. I think the Niners players acknowledge it based on how they performed the last three games. And I think the Cowboys get it or acknowledge it, but they're not putting it into action. At least not yet. And we'll see if they can bounce back this week and we'll go over the picks in the plus section. So I did see an article about how, with the performance, Brock Purdy's MVP odds have improved. So let me give you the top. uh, So now Purdy's in the top five. Let's start it off. So Patrick Mahomes, no surprise. Best odds at plus 350. Then Tua on the Dolphins at plus 500. Jalen Hurts of the Eagles, plus 600. Josh Allen of the Bills, plus 600. Then Brock Purdy at plus 700. There were 13 players listed and these were odds based on per Fox sports. I don't think this was specifically, you know, MGM or Caesars or any sort of sports book of the 13 players listed 12 were quarterbacks. And one was Christian McCaffrey at plus 2000, who was, I think around like maybe eight or maybe say nine, 10 on the list, which really goes to show like the MVP should just, it should just be like MVQ, most valuable quarterback, or MIQ, most important quarterback, or MTQ, most talented quarterback, because that's what the MVP is in the league. You could have a most outstanding offensive player, which is anybody but a quarterback, most outstanding defensive player. And they have, you know, you have, you know, NFL or defensive MVPs, um, offensive MVPs, but it, it's just so slanted towards the QB that. It's sad in a way, it's understandable in another, and it's surprising to see how that one performance nationally televised vaults Purdy into the top five. Now, it's not unwarranted, right? Nine touchdowns, no interceptions. Anybody that still thinks Brock Purdy is a dink and dunk quarterback, Purdy leads the NFL in completion percentage at 72% on passes that have traveled over 10 yards this season. 
completing at a rate higher than anyone else in the league. And if you want to be cynical, you could say, well, maybe he doesn't throw as much as a Mahomes or a Tua or an Allen. So it's more judicious. And maybe he's not throwing as far, so it's easier completions for him. All right, cool. But all I know is anytime he's throwing beyond a normal first down, he's completing the ball at a higher rate than anybody else. And on top of that, he is having a statistically better season than Jalen Hurts. Hasn't thrown any picks, has more passing touchdowns than Hurts, I think has more passing yards than Hurts. Not saying he's a better player. I can understand why Hurts' Hertz, odds aren't that much better. It's plus 600 for Hurts, plus 700 for Purdy, because Hurts adds the running threat, and he gets his running touchdowns from, from all those brotherly shoves that he gets into the end zone. It's not like he's breaking anything for 30 yards in a score like, you know, Lamar Jackson could or, or Josh Allen potentially could. So folks are, are by and large coming around on Purdy, but there obviously definitely still is that seventh round pick. Is, you know, the clock going to strike 12 on Cinderella? And I'm going to keep saying in every podcast, I don't know if the clock will strike 12, and he'll, you know, he's not going to turn into a pumpkin. There will be picks. There will be fumbles. There will be bad games. There will be losses. Happens to every quarterback. Bob Greasy is the only quarterback to go undefeated during the during the regular season and the Super Bowl with the Dolphins, the 72 Dolphins. He may not have lost a game that year, but he threw picks, and he, and he definitely lost games before and after that. It's going to happen. I know I sound like a broken record, but I think it's just important to say, as excited as we're going to get, Let's not get too down when he starts throwing picks, loses a fumble, loses games. Keep everything in perspective, folks. You know the media won't. You know the media won't. The, the first bad game Brock Purdy has, the headline is going to be, is Purdy overrated? It, you know, it, it's going to happen. 24-hour news cycle, multiple-day news cycle. NFL, there's only games played every week. I mean, games are on Sunday, Monday, and Thursday, but when you play your game, you have at least a, usually a week to wait until you play again, so the media needs to fill that airtime with something. I would say as Niner fans, as intelligent Niner fans, let's be above that. It's going to happen. You just roll with it. Now, Dan Orlovsky of ESPN, formerly of the Detroit Lions, and today is the 15-year anniversary of Dan Orlovsky running out of the end zone down the side of the end zone like a clueless moron, not reeling he was out of bounds, ran ran down it for a good three or four seconds and was called for a safety. So whatever you know, Jimmy Garoppolo did last year at Denver, guys, not nearly that bad. It happens to punters stepping out of the end zone if, you're, if they're backed up and have to punt. But Dan Orlovsky is the original quarterback safety moron, and he had this to say on the Brock Purdy-Mac Jones comparison. He came out and stated that Mac Jones would be performing just as well as Brock Purdy if Mac Jones was in San Francisco. And he has been known to give, uh, he gives some really good and thoughtful breakdown as an ex-quarterback, granted an ex-bad NFL quarterback, still good enough to be an NFL quarterback and sees the games differently than we as fans do. Historically has had some pretty good takes, but then at the same time, Usually, you know, sometimes likes to zig when other people are zagging in terms of what folks are saying. And again, media, hot takes, Stephen A. Smith wouldn't have a job. Skip Bayless wouldn't have a job if it wasn't for hot takes and yelling and just being a contrarian. Here's what's fair to say. What he said, I think, is wrong. Here's what would be the fair thing to say. If Mac Jones was on the 49ers, he would be performing better than he's been performing on the Patriots. I think we can agree with that. Shanahan's coaching, Shanahan's system, the weapons that they have versus New England. Now, year one, he had Josh McDaniels. Year two, he had, uh, God, Christ, I'm drawing a blank on the name, the defensive, a former defensive coordinator, Matt Patricia, as his offensive coordinator. And this year was supposed to be fixed with Bill O'Brien as the offensive coordinator. And it's not. 
but it's fair because Mac Jones has looked terrible the last two games. He's been benched the last two games, so it's not a stretch, and I think it's fair to say if Mac Jones was on the 49ers this year, or say the last three years, he would be performing better than what we've seen out of Mac Jones the past two or three years out of the Patriots. Fair. Now, that has gotten me, that got me to think, who are the quarterbacks right now, say if you're starting a team or just universally thought of as better than Purdy, on the same playing field as Purdy, and quarterbacks I would definitely take Purdy over. And I've got seven that I think we can maybe agree are thought of in higher regard or considered better quarterbacks than Purdy. And this is in no order, because I just looked at the divisions. If anything, this is in division order, but not a rank order of who is the best and then second best and third. Not at all. So the seven that are better, Josh Allen of the Bills, Aaron Rodgers of the Jets when he's healthy, Lamar Jackson of the Ravens, Joe Burrow of the Bengals, Patrick Mahomes of the Chiefs, Justin Herbert of the Chargers, and Jalen Hurts of the Eagles. Interesting that only Jalen Hurts is the, is the only NFC quarterback represented on that list. Some people might take exception with Lamar. Hey, he does have an MVP under his belt. He only does have one playoff win. He is more dynamic with the running. Would he fit as well in Shanahan's system? I don't know. I mean, Shanahan drafted Lance because he wanted a dual-threat quarterback. It's not, well, it is Shanahan and Lynch's fault that they couldn't project that Lance could not process the offense as well as they thought he would be able to in year two and three. So Lamar, I don't know. And would would Brock Purdy make the Ravens better? I, I don't know. I mean, the Ravens should have beaten the Steelers last week. There's a whole bunch of drop passes that just killed that team. So those are the seven that I think are better. Now, here are eight that I think are on, on the level. If you want to say a little bit better, a little bit worse, but these, I think, are the arguable players. Tua of the Dolphins, Trevor Lawrence of the Jaguars, Dak Prescott of the Cowboys, Jared Goff of the Lions, uh, Carr of the Saints, Matthew Stafford of the Rams, Kirk Cousins of the Vikings, and Geno Smith of the Seahawks. Now, again, people may look at this and say, oh, Dak Prescott's crap. He had a bad game against the Niners. He's had three bad games against the Niners. How many quarterbacks have had bad games against the Niners defense? Dak Prescott is not a crap quarterback. I think uh, Derek Carr of this, I, I think he's an underrated quarterback. Stafford has been good. Goff has come on. Cousins is probably the most underappreciated quarterback in the NFL. And Geno, yes, had one good season last year with the Seahawks, but he is playing at a pretty, pretty good, pretty high level. Tua, track meet of an offense with Miami, and Trevor Lawrence, some may say, well, you know, he was a generational talent, came out three years ago. I don't think he's looked spectacular overall, but I can see the argument of some people taking you know, a Lawrence or a two over him. Again, I'm saying these are the ones that are in the ballpark. The standard deviation, <laughs> to use a medical scientific phrase, between Brock and these eight quarterbacks is a lot smaller than that gap between the ones that I said were better. The Allens, the Burrow, Mahomes, Herbert, Hurts. There's more of a gap there. So that leads 16 quarterbacks that I would undoubtedly take Brock Purdy over. And again, no particular order other than maybe divisions, as I was looking at the NFL divisions. Mac Jones of the Patriots, Kenny Pickett of the Steelers, Deshaun Watson of the Browns, Anthony Richardson or Gardner Minshew of the Colts, C.J. Stroud of the Texans, Ryan Tannehill of the Titans, Jimmy G of the Raiders, Russell Wilson of the Broncos, Sam Howell of the Commanders, Daniel Jones of the Giants, Jordan Love, Packers, Justin Fields, Bears, Baker Mayfield on the Buccaneers, Desmond Ritter, Falcons, Bryce Young, Panthers, and whoever's quarterbacking for the Cardinals, either Josh Dobbs or Kyler Murray. I, th I think that's a fair 16. Someone's going to argue and say, oh, when Kyler Murray's healthy, he's so dynamic. Yeah, all right, how about the leadership aspect? How about the not studying the playbook aspect? How about the just not being that great sometimes aspect? And then otherwise, I don't think there's anybody else here that I would 
I would even argue is close to Purdy. So at worst, Brock Purdy is a top 15 quarterback. At best, he's top eight, right? If you if you think he's better than everybody that I said was on the same level as him, Tua, Lawrence, Dak, Goff, Carr, Stafford, Cousins, and Geno, then Purdy's a top eight quarterback. So he's somewhere, to me, somewhere right now between eight and 15. That's fair. I'm not a Niner homer. Now, some fans may be out there and say, ah, there's no quarterback I would take over Brock Purdy to run this system. That's fine. And I actually probably feel the same way too. But if you're looking at maybe the total package of the prototypical type of quarterback, then the folks that are in that better tier have more going on. This was the whole Trey Lance discussion, right? Trey Lance may have more going on. Bigger, stronger arm can run. And then, oops, the mental processing not there. He is out of the top 40 or 45 quarterbacks in the NFL. Purdy is almost perfect for what Kyle Shanahan wants to do with the 49ers. That doesn't mean he's the prototypical NFL quarterback. That doesn't mean if Brock Purdy, uh, a Brock Purdy clone comes out next year or the year after that, he's going to be the number one overall pick. You know, he, he doesn't look like an Elway. He doesn't look like a... Uh, an Andrew Luck, um, a Trevor Lawrence. I'm just thinking of other quarterbacks that have gone like number one overall that kind of have that, you know, 6'4", 220, big arm can move. Peyton Manning, you know, well, Peyton Manning can't move, but, you know, that type of pedigree and almost unanimous, that's a top one or two quarterback, or that's a generational type quarterback. Doesn't mean anything, guys. Doesn't mean you shouldn't feel slighted. Your self-confidence shouldn't take a hit. He's winning. He's doing it the way that Kyle wants to. He has Kyle's trust. And he's making different throws more downfield than we've seen from Jimmy or other 49er quarterbacks under Kyle since he's been here in 2017. So if he wins the MVP, fantastic. That means he had a great season for the 49ers. If someone's going to say he's top 15 and someone's going to say he's top 12 or top 8, don't lose sleep over it. Who cares? Make your own rankings. If he's top five in your head, top seven, great. Again, no no skin off our back, what other people are saying. So now let's preview the 49ers-Browns matchup this Sunday, 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time in Cleveland. Let's go through some of the star players that the Browns have. Not sure if he's playing, but Deshaun Watson at quarterback, the running back combo of Jerome Ford and Kareem Hunt. Receiver Amari Cooper, tight end David Njoku. Defensive ends Miles Garrett and Zadarius Smith. Cornerback Denzel Ward. So I mentioned Watson has a shoulder issue. They were The Browns had a bye last week, obviously didn't play, rested. There's the potential that Watson may not be able to play this game. Rookie Dorian Thompson-Robinson played before the bye at home against the Ravens. This was a rookie that everybody was salivating over in the preseason. Had a great, great preseason. Comes out against the Ravens, throws three picks, they lose 28-3. Again, goes to show preseason means nothing in terms of projecting a player into that upcoming regular season. It's good for getting timing down, getting timing and chemistry with your uh, receivers, you know, getting some hits, just getting the body acclimated to playing football. But you can't project anything based on how well or poorly someone plays in the preseason. And if that's the case, if Dorian Thompson is is not going to be an option, the Browns may call up P.J. Walker from their practice squad Former Carolina Panther has some starting experience, has mobility like Deshaun Watson and Dorian Thompson-Robinson do. So the QB decision is up in the air, but the Browns are going to cause problems for San Francisco. Overall, they have 12 sacks as a team, so they're averaging uh, three a game. Miles Garrett himself has five and a half. Interestingly enough, his defensive end running mate, Zadarius Smith, formerly of the Packers, has none. And as a team, they only have one interception. And we're going to get more on the defense in a bit, but they have players. 
They are missing Nick Chubb, who hurt his catastrophically hurt his knee a couple weeks ago. So Jerome Ford has become the starter. They re-signed Kareem Hunt to be the backup and share some of the running duties. They have a good offensive line. They're going to want to run the ball, and they can. Overall, the Browns have the 21st offense, 30th passing at 172.5 yards a game, 5th rushing, 143.8, and 23rd in points scored with 19 a game. But defense is where the Browns will hang their hat. Number one overall defense, allowing only 197 yards a game. That is 70 yards more or less per game, excuse me, than the number two defense in the league. They are the number one pass defense in the league, allowing only 125 passing yards per game, 43 yards less per game than the number two pass defense. Number four rush defense, allowing 72 yards a game. They're number two in points, allowing 15 points per game. 29th in turnover differential at minus seven. Who have the Browns played? They started off at home against the Bengals. They shellacked them in a a very rainy game in Ohio. The, The Bengals couldn't do much of anything offensively. Went to Pittsburgh, lost there. Home for Tennessee, shellacked the Titans. Held them to only three points as well, like they did the Bengals. Uh, and they really couldn't, the, the uh, Titans couldn't get anything going, really running the ball with Derrick Henry and, and Ryan Tanhill didn't have a good day either. And then at home to Baltimore, they wound up losing 28 to 3. Baltimore passed the ball for 186 yards and ran for 131. On to San Francisco's ratings, overall offense, number three, uh, number eight, passing at 246 yards, number three, rushing at 156 per game, number two, and scoring at 33.4. San Francisco's defense is number three overall, 12th against the pass, 203 yards a game, second against the rush, 64 yards a game, number one in points allowed at 13.6, and number one in turnover differential at plus seven. So some matchups to watch here. So (laughs) on both sides of the ball, the O-line and the D-line, let's start with the Browns on defense. Miles Garrett and Zadarius Smith against Trent Williams and Colton McKivitz. McKivitz has been pretty solid since week one against TJ Watt. Now, in all likelihood, he's going to get Miles Garrett for most of the game, who is a bigger defensive end than Watt is, probably has more power he is going to be a handful. Zadarius Smith, depending on how they rush, right? If I was the Browns defensive coordinator, I would line Garrett over McKivitz every single play. At some point, Shanahan will leave a tight end in or chip, use use check as a running back, uh, fullback or a running back to just slow Garrett down. If that's the case and Zadarius Smith is lined up across from Trent Williams, you have to f- uh, feel good about that if you're a Niner fan. Now let's flip it around. The 49ers D-line and they roll eight deep against the Cleveland Browns offensive line, who have given up 16 sacks this season, which equates to four sacks per game. So Bosa, Armstead, Hargrave, if Randy Gregory plays, Drake Jackson, Cleland Farrell, Kinlaw Givens, they could feast. They haven't had a huge breakout game in terms of number of sacks, but maybe... This could be the game, even though they're going to be facing three mobile quarterbacks who, as you know, the 49ers have issues with mobile quarterbacks. But if it's not Deshaun Watson, then you're going to be facing either a rookie or P.J. Walker, a player with limited snaps being on the practice squad, potentially looking confused in the pocket, holding the ball too long and maybe taking some sacks. Now, the Browns pass defense, number one in the NFL, only giving up 125 yards a game. It's going to be Denzel Ward and Greg Newsome and the safeties against Debo and Ayuk. And when you flip it around, the most uh, impactful threat that the Browns have is Amari Cooper. And we'll see if Charvarius Ward shadows him uh, around the field. He, they've only really done that once or twice with Ward and Metcalf when they play the Seahawks. And we'll see that matchup between Warner and Greenlaw covering tight end David Njoku. So can the 49ers pass offense, which is allowing is which is get, uh, gaining 246 yards a game, overcome what Cleveland is doing defensively against the pass? 
It's basically cut in half what the Browns are allowing versus what the Niners are getting. Do I think Brock Purdy is going to throw for 125 yards or less than 175? No, I think he'll probably be around 200, maybe a little bit over it. If the Niners can establish the run, obviously that would be helpful as well because the Browns defense is only letting up 72 rushing yards a game and the Niners are running it for 156 yards a game, so that's less than half. So it's there are strength-on-strength strength matchups happening here when the 49ers have the ball. When Cleveland has the ball, can the Niners shut down the Browns' running game? The Browns are running it for 144 yards a game, which is really impressive given the fact that Chubb is no longer on the team, so it's going to be Ford, it's going to be Hunt, and you're going to get some production out of a quarterback whether it's going to be Watson, Dorian Thompson, Robinson, or P.J. Walker. You're going to get yards there as well. But the Niners' run defense is only giving up 64 yards per game. Browns do have a good line. We'll see what that means for opening up lanes in the run and how they can protect whomever the quarterback is in the pass. If Deshaun Watson does not play, I don't think the Browns can hurt the 49ers too much. I looked at the extended forecast weather-wise. It's supposed to rain Friday and I'm sorry, Saturday and Monday, but not on Sunday. So right now, clear weather. If that changes and we're talking about, you know, a wet, wet field, rain situation, who knows, right? Fumbles, tipped balls, inaccurate throws due to rain on either side of the ball, but we're talking about, say, the 49ers offense, um, could change the game, right? Turnovers could change the game. But all things being equal, I think San Francisco wins this game 27-16. to I think the Browns' defense is really good. They may be as good as advertised, but they also may be as good as the teams they've played. A lost Bengals team in the rain week one, Steelers don't have much offense. Tennessee doesn't have much offense. And the Ravens, although they scored 28, they did get some short fields on on three of um, Thompson Robinson's interceptions, really only wound up putting up um, 317 yards of offense. So I think the Browns' defense is good. They have not seen an offense like San Francisco's, how diverse and multiple the 49ers' offense can be. But I don't think the Niners are going to look the way they looked against Dallas. Dallas is a good defense too, but I think Cleveland, statistically for sure, is better. And I think Cleveland's defense will keep them in this game for, I would think, the first two and a half quarters. And San Francisco winds up separating in the second half. I said a 27 to 16 victory. So that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Stick with us. Coming up in the plus section, discussing a Major League Baseball playoff format change to assuage a lot of the babies and whiners out there. We're going to talk the Wheel of Time Season 2 finale, Loki Season 2 premiere, and conclude by making Week 6 NFL picks. Stay with us. It's plus time! So we're in the divisional round for the Major League Baseball playoffs, and obviously anybody that calls into sports talk is generally calling to bitch and whine. And even on ESPN, people complaining about this format and and series should be longer. The wild card round is a best of three. The divisional round is a best of five. The NLCS and ALCS and World Series are best of seven. And the argument, so let's go actually, let's go through the wild card round. So the fifth seeded Rangers, Texas Rangers, beat the number four seeded Tampa Bay Rays. Okay, upset. The number three Twins beat the number six-seeded Blue Jays. Not an upset. The number four Philadelphia Phillies in the National League beat the five-seeded Marlins. Okay, not an upset. And the number six Arizona Diamondbacks beat the number three-seeded Milwaukee Brewers. Okay, upset. Fine. All four of these wildcard games were sweeps, meaning two games to none. But it's even. In two times, twice the better team won, twice the quote-unquote worst team won, or the lower-seeded team. I don't see a big deal with that. I like the fact that the wild card now is best of three versus it was a few years ago just one game. Even though other sports <clears throat> like the NFL have a their one-game playoffs and college football and etc. But 
baseball purists are always going to be, you know, over the course of a series, the better team's going to win. And I'm going to get to that and and shoot that down because I think it's nonsense. Now, the American League Division Series, you had the number five Rangers beat the top-seeded Orioles in three straight games. Upset. Then the number two-seeded Astros beat the number three-seeded Twins in four games, three to one. Not an upset. So in the American League, even. One upset, one the favored one. Favorite one. National League, the number six-seeded D-backs beat the number two-seeded LA Dodgers three to zero. Upset, right? And now, right now, the Phillies are the four-seed and they're leading the Atlanta Braves, who are the one-seed two games to one. So the Phillies could maybe get that upset as well. Dodgers, you know, they didn't hit. Clayton Kershaw is horrendous in the postseason. There's reasons why the Dodgers got swept. The Rangers got hot. Got hot. Orioles could not hang, as, even as a one seed, got swept. And the Astros were just a better team than the Twins. I think everybody kind of saw, saw that coming. But people are going to go back and say, well, you know, baseball, you have a five-man pitching rotation, and you really should have a longer series because the better team is supposed to win if you play out, you know, to, to seven games. It's assuming a series goes seven. You know, 70, 80 years ago, World Series was nine games or like 100 years ago. It used to be best of nine. Like, get the hell out of here. That's, that's ridiculous. Best of seven for the, the League Championship Series and World Series, I'm okay with. Best of five now for the Divisional Series, I'm okay with. Best of three for the Wild Card, I'm okay with also. It's okay to have upsets. Why are we trying to stack the deck further for the better team? If the rationale for the baseball purists, or just, I don't want to say purists, the folks that don't like a shortened series is, well, the better team may have the better pitching staff and it'll show over the course of seven games that the better team's going to win. Well, if that's the case, why have playoffs? Just let the number one seed in the American League and the number one seed in the National League just play in the World Series. Because by that logic, they have the best teams in their respective leagues. Any series at seven games, they should win. So let's just cut out all the drama and have them meet. Instead, we actually have drama that's good. We had two upsets in the wildcard round. We've had... Two upsets in the division series round, maybe a third. Why do we need to cater to the good teams? Hey, you know, Orioles who had a buy, Braves who had a buy, you guys could set your rotation up. You got extra rest, which means your number one, two, and three um, pitchers are guaranteed to start because of that extra time. You're, you had time to set that rotation up. You're going to be putting your best players specifically right now, your best pitchers out there to start the series because you got the buys. And oops, it's not my fault. It's not the Rangers' fault or the Phillies' fault or the D-backs' fault that you guys shit the bed. Baltimore, L.A., and Atlanta, or Atlanta may shit the bed. It happens. Upsets in sports happen. I would rather have shortened series to give the quote-unquote worst teams more of a chance. It levels The playing field. Baseball, yes, over the course of 162 games, you get to see statistically who the best teams are in each division and each league. Playoff sports, baseball, basketball, hockey, football, college football, whatever, it's a different animal. Everybody says it, right? It just is. It's the second season. So we don't need to do anything. We don't need to lengthen the goddamn playoffs to give the quote-unquote better teams even more of an advantage that they have already because they're the better goddamn team. And I've been saying this for the NBA. The NBA from 1983 to 2003, their first round was a best of five. That was raised to best of seven because they were getting worried that good teams were going to get knocked out of the first round and that impacts TV ratings and it impacts league revenue. Now baseball is I'm sorry, basketball is best of seven from the first round. So like, it's too long of a friggin' playoff. And there have been some great upsets. I still remember, I forget what year, was it 90, 
two, three, four, when the Nuggets upset the number one seeded Sonics, could it have happened in seven games? Maybe. But the fact that they it happened in five, the fact that it happened at all was awesome. It doesn't matter if it happened in five or seven, but I guess more of a chance for it to happen in five. But at the same time, if you are the number one seed and the best team in the Eastern or Western Conference, you have no business losing to a number eight. You have no business losing in five. You have no business losing at all. You should sweep their asses right off the court. And I know, you know, basketball now has the play-in tournament with teams seven, eight, nine, and ten. Uh, and then you get into, and that's fine. That was like an interesting out-of-the-box way of thinking about it. But I think that's even more reason why the, the, the round after that should be a best of five. Because now you have the last two seeds in each conference playing games, playing a play-in tournament, just in case that sounded confusing the way I said it. And now they're maybe fatigued. And now you want to put them through maybe a seven-game series if it goes through it? No, make it five. Make it five. Give your Make your playoffs as equitable as possible. Don't keep giving more to the better teams. They're better for a reason. They Because they're the better team. They perform better. That should be reward enough. It's not going to change. Baseball may change because all the purists and pussies and people that are crying about it may, may whine and want to change it. But I like, I mean, it's, it's cumulative, right? It's additive. You go from best of three, best of five, best of seven, World Series, best of seven also. I like that. I like that build. Basketball doesn't have it. They should. Now let's transition to some TV. So Amazon Prime Video's Wheel of Time series season two finale aired last week. I think it's been a good season and it's been an improvement over season one. Ultimately what happens, and if you have not watched it, um, spoiler, but uh, friends on the show, Rand, um, Naive, Perrin, and Matt meet in a, in a city. They didn't know that they were all going to meet there, but they did a city that's under siege by mercenaries, and they realize that their fifth friend, uh, Eugene, is there, and they save her as well. She's, she wound up actually being kind of like a slave to other magic users, and they were trying to defend the city against people that wanted to liberate it. Um, not going to go into the kind of particulars of that, but they do wind up freeing her. Um, the lead female character, Moraine A. Sedai, played by Rosamund Pike, uh, at the end of season one, had her power, her channeling power, her magical power cut off from her. She gets it back, actually the episode before this one, but is able to use it. She rebonds with her ward, Lan, and helps Rand and his friends um, from afar by destroying some boats that are on the sea that are waiting to attack the city once they are kind of given the word. So Moraine kind of clears that out of the way for Rand to lead the attack on um, one of the Dark One's lieutenants. His name is Ishmael. Rand winds up killing him and be becomes announced or is announced as the Dragon Reborn. And for some folks on this continent or world, you know, they see him as a savior. Other people could be a bit um, hesitant about this because any male who can channel this energy this power can go mad so that still kind of remains to be seen but he is announced by uh, basically a fire dragon kind of encircling the spire that he and his friends are on and it was a cool scene and and finale episode I, you know definitely felt like a finale for for sure in, in terms of season two and like I said at the beginning, season two definitely improved on season one. Wheel of Time super fans, I think, still aren't overly happy with the show, at least what I'm reading online, articles, and on Reddit. And that's okay, because like I've always said, none of these shows are made for super fans. None of these adaptions or movies or franchises are made for super fans. They're made for general audiences, and adaptions, especially for TV, need to be made given the TV format, and especially for a book series that runs 14 books deep, and it's going to have eight seasons of TV at the most, I hope. I enjoyed, I liked season one for what it was. It did look a little cheap at times. I really enjoyed season two, definitely how it gained momentum after the first two episodes. And even internet trolls and review bombers on sites like Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb agree. Season one's ratings out of a 10 were all kind of in the sevens, the low to mid sevens. 
season two, once you got past the first two episodes and the season started gaining momentum, all of the ratings were in the eights, mid eights, and low nines. And, and when you have someone take the time out to make a review online, more often than not, it's going to be someone that has some affinity for the source material, right? Like these are people that have probably read the books and are actually pleased with how the story um, and at least the production of the TV show, TV show is progressing. So we got six seasons to go and that's what, 10, 10 more years or 12 more years of waiting. Um, I hope they can get there. It sucks that we have to wait two years between anything, between Wheel of Time, uh, Rings of Power, Lord of the Rings, Ahsoka, Mandalorian, whatever, whatever it may be. And it's great that there's a lot of content to watch, whether you have an Apple Plus or Disney Plus, Prime Video, Netflix, Hulu, Network TV, whatever you may have. But it's really the streaming options that are giving us the two-year wait between even HBO Max with House of the Dragon. And I'll just conclude with saying, you know, if the world of Game of Thrones, including Game of Thrones proper and House of the Dragon... In total is, you know, like an A-tier, an A-list fantasy show, fantasy series. Then I think Wheel of Time is a solid B. It might have been maybe like a B-minus-ish season one, but I think the improvements that they've made, and I have not read the books, but it just felt like a stronger season overall. And guys, if you haven't watched it, if you're fantasy fans, you have no interest of it, that's fine. But you get a solid 60 or 65 minutes of show every episode. When you trim off like the intro and the recap and the end credits, you're still getting a solid 60 minutes of episode. So that's a solid eight hours of Wheel of Time. Whereas, you know, Ahsoka might say 47 minutes, but when you trim the front and the back off, it's like 40 minutes. Like, you know, you're getting shortchanged in a way. You're not getting that with Wheel of Time. Say what you want about the story, the adaption, how it changed from the books, that's fine. But time-wise, you're getting your money's worth. So from a series that had its season finale to a season premiere, let's go back to Disney+. Plus. Loki season two um, premiered last week. Actually, episode two is out today. I have not watched it yet. But in terms of where the story is, season one premiered in 2021, and it dealt with the title character Loki, if you remember from the, the most recent or last Avengers movie, Avengers Endgame, when the heroes go back in time to try to collect all of the Infinity Stones, they go back to basically the first Avengers movie and take Loki's lance that has an Infinity Stone in it and um, you know are gathering it for their cause. Confusion happens in like the lobby of the Avengers building and Loki is able to teleport away from that situation. Now that's the same character that died in the previous Avengers movie, Avengers Infinity War, died in the beginning sequence when Thanos um, attacked the ship, wound up killing Loki, uh, and then kind of announcing that he's kind of coming for everybody else and Thor is able to escape. But the Loki that we saw escape in the sequel Avengers movie Endgame is the main character of the series. And because he escaped that situation in Avengers Endgame, Loki, that Loki is considered a variant by this organization called the Time Variance Authority. And because he's a variant, he needs to be eliminated. But they need his help because another variant of him, another Loki variant, is killing people. The ultimate point of this time variance authority is when variants occur outside of the normal main timeline, they have to track down that variant, kill it, and then what they call prune any branching timelines off of the main timeline. They are the keepers of the main timeline. At the end of season one, Loki and one of his variants winds up confronting Kang at the end, the very end of the timeline. Um, his variant winds up killing Kang, or or we think, or at least just injuring him. And that kind of sets out, or sets off a chain of events where all different Kangs, and this Kang character is a time traveler, he's super powerful. He was in the latest Ant-Man Quantumania movie, which I haven't seen, and he's going to be the focus or the big bad villain of the upcoming Avengers, um, the Kang Dynasty movie, which still probably is going to be out for another couple of years. But 
that the Kang character that was killed at the end of Loki season one basically says, hey, if you want to kill me, fine, but I'm the one that's holding all this shit together. I'm the one that's holding the timeline together. I'm the one that's keeping other versions of myself from other timelines at bay. You kill me, the floodgates open. Well, they kill him or stab him or something, and now the floodgates are going to open, and that's where season two picks right up Loki goes back to the Time Variance Authority headquarters. He knows about Kang. He knows who the big bad is, uh, but he's suffering from a time issue. He's slipping in time, and he's being pulled from the present to the past to the future, and he needs the character Mobius, his help to fix that, played by Owen Wilson, and they actually get help from another character played by uh, Kehu Kwan from... Goonies fame and short round from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And most recently, I think he won a Best Supporting Actor uh, Oscar for Everything Everywhere All at Once. So great to see him back doing doing more stuff. Um, Loki gets fixed. He's not going back and forth in time anymore. But they realize that the Time Variance Authority, for whatever reason, is going after the female variant of Loki, and they need to eliminate her. And that's where episode one ended. Uh, and I'll watch probably episode two tonight. The Loki series is a fun series. It's a well-made series. It t- it continued a thread from in- uh, Endgame that you just, you're like, oh, we're, Loki just escaped. What, what happened? And they actually have a TV show that tells you what happened. And it's interesting to see how much, you know, Loki, the god of mischief, Thor's brother, is kind of helpless here. And he's trying to help an organization that originally wanted to eliminate him and, and wanting to help the female variant version of himself, because I I guess he developed some feelings for her. It's a fun, well done series, you know, critics and audiences agree. IMDB, all the episodes are like, you know, eight and a half or higher, only six episodes, season one, season two is probably going to be the same. Hopefully I didn't give up away too much. If you're planning on watching it, it is a well done series, Disney plus, Season one available, season two, we are two episodes in. Each new episode drops on Thursday. And let's conclude with week six picks in the NFL. Uh, Green Bay and the Steelers are on a bye this week. Tonight, the Amazon Prime game, Denver at Kansas City. Denver really has no chance. The only thing that remains to be seen watching this game is will Sean Payton have a stroke on the sidelines? Will he bench Russell Wilson at any point for Jared Stidham? Otherwise, the Chiefs, Mahomes, Kelsey, and Taylor Swift, who's probably going to be on attendance, will win that game. Baltimore at Tennessee, a 9.30 a.m. game being played in England. This one was a difficult one for me to pick. I think Tennessee, I mean, these are both not great teams. I think maybe Tennessee a little bit more complete, certainly not as dynamic as Baltimore could be with Lamar Jackson. But I think behind Mike Vrabel and a decent defense, they will squeak out a win against the Ravens. Washington at Atlanta. Sam Howell has quietly become a really, maybe not, I don't want to say good yet because it's young for him, but on the verge of being good and a high statistical passing quarterback. Yards, touchdowns, fantasy points. Atlanta, um, I think at home though, made a trade this week with the Rams for wide receiver, um, Van Jefferson, which is great, although they don't throw the ball a ton. We'll see how he works into that. Desmond Ritter, though, quarterback, had a good game last week, went over 300 yards, got Kyle Pitts finally involved. We know they can run the ball. What B. John Robinson can do, I think they will beat Washington. Minnesota at Chicago. So the Vikings are going to be without star receiver Justin Jefferson for the next four weeks, dealing with a hamstring injury. He was put on injured reserve. That may make Minnesota, I don't want to say more balanced, but at least distributing the ball in a bit more balanced of a fashion without him. But then again, that's also going to affect how the Bears coverage plays the Vikings. The Vikings defense, I thought, could and should be better than what they were last year. Statistically, they're a little bit better, not much. And Justin Fields, although one and one the last two games, came off of two good performances with four touchdowns apiece. I think the Bears get the victory. Seattle at Cincinnati. The Bengals found their footing last week, beating the Cardinals. Seahawks were on a bye. This is a heart and head pick. I think the Bengals hopefully have turned the corner. Hopefully wide receiver T. Higgins 
can play for the Bengals more than just for my own fantasy team purposes. It's a good day anytime the Seahawks lose. The Seahawks are just currently a game and a half behind the 49ers. A loss would give some separation. Go Bengals. Carolina at Miami. Dolphins. Moving on. Indianapolis at Jacksonville. Colts quarterback Anthony Richardson um, sprained his AC joint in his shoulder. He's out for anywhere between four to eight weeks. It's going to be Garner Minshew, who might actually make that team better from a pure quarterbacking standpoint. But Jacksonville, two straight wins in uh, England, coming back home to Jacksonville, which I guess is hopefully it's a good thing for them. I think they will beat the Colts. New Orleans at Houston, another tricky game. You know, Houston was looking good until they lost at Atlanta. I believe it was Atlanta last week. Uh, Saints not looking fantastic. I mean, looked good last week against the uh, Patriots, 134-0. Patriots are abysmal. But before that, they got thumped by the Buccaneers in New Orleans. I think the Saints, if they can ride that defense another week for what they did to the Patriots, um, Alvin Kamara back, Michael Thomas getting back involved at receiver, Chris Olave. I think they have a little bit more going on than what the Texans can handle. New England at Las Vegas, the Josh McDaniels Bowl. And I think uh, Josh McDaniels is going to be looking across at the team that if Bill Belichick is still the head coach next year, Josh McDaniels might be the offensive coordinator for the Patriots next year. I do not think he will be the Raiders coach next year, but I think he will do enough to get the win. The Patriots look helpless, have scored three points in the last two games. They will probably score more more than that against the Raiders, but I do think the Raiders get the win. Arizona against the Rams. The Rams are better than I think any of us thought they were going to be. They're what? Two and two, right? Um, or two and three or three and two. I can't, I can't keep track. I should have something pulled up. But with Cooper Cup back, they played the Eagles pretty well. Only lost by what it was, 11. Um, Arizona, scrappy, tough. Couple turnovers by quarterback Josh Dobbs sunk them against the Bengals. I think the Rams here at home will get the victory over Arizona. Philadelphia at the Jets. Philly's going to win this game. It's just a matter of how close can the Jets defense make it? Can they get stops? Can they force turnovers? Can they slow the Eagles running game down? They're averaging, I think, over 140 rushing yards a game. And then can Zach Wilson... Zach Wilson, now this game is a little bit different. I've said before that in the eight winnable games the Jets had left... Zach Wilson just needed to be the reason why they don't lose. He can't be the reason. I'm sorry. He can't be the reason why they lose the game. He almost has to be indifferent an indifferent force toward the game, but not the reason why they lose it. Zach Wilson may have to be the reason why they win this game. The Jets defense is going to play pretty well. The Eagles look okay, but still somewhat out of sorts, not nearly as dynamic on either side of the ball as they were last year. But the Jets defense can't do this on their own. Zach Wilson will need to play complimentary football and be the reason they win. And I just don't think he's there yet. Detroit at Tampa Bay. Tampa having a better season than we thought. Detroit probably a little bit better than a lot of us thought. But the Lions really do have a stranglehold on the NFC North. I think that defensive line and defense will get after Baker Mayfield. I think the Lions will lean on their run and have enough offense to beat Tampa Bay down in Florida. The Giants at the Bills, let's take the Bills. It doesn't matter who the Giants are going to trot out there at quarterback. They should rest uh, Daniel Jones. If he has a sore neck, there's no way the neck's going to get better after playing a football game. They should rest Saquon Barkley one more week. There's no reason to put him out there in a game they're going to lose no matter what. They're still missing Evan Neal, or I think they're still going to be missing their center potentially. Rest your players Accept the fact that you're one in five and try to make a run the last 11 games of the season. Because again, that third wild card could be in play if you can go seven and four the rest of the way. If you can get to eight and nine, or if you can go eight and three the rest of the way, which I think is too tall of an order for this team. But if you can go seven and four, get to eight and nine, you might have an outside shot at fighting for that third wild card. Sit your important players. It's not worth it this week. That's the Sunday night game. So the whole country gets once again to see the New York Giants. Congratulations. And the Monday night game, so we get two consecutive weeks of the Dallas Cowboys on national television. Dallas at the Chargers. Obviously, the Cowboys 
coming off of a thumping against the 49ers. Chargers are at home, but does that really matter? There's probably going to be more Cowboy fans there than Charger fans. The Chargers should be getting back running back running back Aaron um, Eckler. Uh, they are without receiver Mike Williams for the rest of the season due to a torn ACL. I think this is a bounce back game for Dallas. I don't think it's going to look pretty. I don't think it's going to look great. And the Chargers still can be a very potent offense led by Herbert and company. But I think the 49er game, at least for this week, was, excuse me, a wake-up call for the Cowboys. They certainly can't play any worse than they've played. And who's the um, head coach of the Chargers? Brandon Staley. He'll find a way to give this game away. He'll do something stupid or multiple stupid things to give this game away to a team with a head coach that has a history of giving games away also, or at least not putting his team in the best position to win a game. So I will actually take the Dallas Cowboys for the second week in a row, amazingly enough. So that concludes the podcast for this week. As always, I want to thank you for listening, for taking time out of your busy schedule to make us a part of your listening day, Thursday night. So like I mentioned, we have Loki episode two, season two dropping on Disney, or if it hasn't dropped already, we have prime video uh, game between the Broncos and and Chiefs, and if you only want to watch it to catch glimpses of Taylor Swift, knock yourself out. We have a pretty decent slate of football games on Sunday. I'll apologize for the Sunday night game, having to see the Giants again, and we'll see if the Cowboys can uh, bounce back against the Chargers. And of course, this is a 49er podcast. We'll see what the top two defenses, or two of the top three defenses in the NFL can do against each other in Cleveland. So the next podcast will be coming on Monday to recap everything from the weekend's football events and more. So until then, everyone stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. We'll talk soon. Take care.